This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear The Moons of Jupiter by Alice Munro, which was published in The New Yorker in May of 1978. On the screen, a bright, jagged line was continually being written. The writing was accompanied by a nervous, electronic beeping. The behavior of his heart was on display. I tried to ignore it. The story was chosen by Claire Sestanovich, whose story collection Objects of Desire was published in 2021. Hi, Claire. Hi, Deborah. So you chose a story by Alice Munro to read today. Has her work been important to you as a writer, as a reader? Uh, both, yes. I have been a sort of uh, lifelong worshiper of Alice Munro. Um, I think I was probably introduced to her by my mother. Monroe's a favorite of hers, and she was also a favorite of my grandmother's. And actually, this copy of The Moons of Jupiter that I've been reading all week has her name on the cover. Um, so, yeah, I remember as sort of a, a maybe an 11 or 12-year-old taking this, the selected stories off my parents' shelf, which is a it's this heavy volume, dark purple, very mature purple, sort of plum and reading it and having some adult ask me what I was reading, which, of course, was exactly what I wanted to happen and feeling very <laughs> impressed with myself. Um, and I don't think I actually read that um, book in earnest. It was more for show. Um, but I did shortly thereafter read The Lives of Girls and Women, um, which is Monroe's, you know, it's often called a novel, though I guess it's more what marketers would now call linked stories. Um and it's very autobiographical, set in small-town Ontario. And I was probably the same age as the narrator, this girl Dell, or the same age she is for most of the book, um, when I read it. And she was just one of those characters that I wanted to be her, um, which, you know, is sort of a porous, indiscriminate way of reading, which I'm still guilty of. But since I think what it really means is I wanted to be Alice Monroe, I don't. Um, <laughs> I c could have done worse. I would still like to be Alice Monroe. So she's been very, very formative for me. Yeah, yeah. You wanted to rise above the the Alice Monroe childhood and become a writer, <laughs> yes, as as Dell does in the book. Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you think it is that she does in her stories that no one else does? Yeah. Um, you know, it's a sort of contradictory experience that I have reading her because on the one hand, it is just this complete and utter formal control. Um, you know, you do not read Alice Monroe and think, well, what if you'd rearrange the paragraphs or change this word? Um, well, I do. <laughs> I, you do. <laughs> I never do. Yeah, you know, I have just I've typed out paragraphs of Monroe to sort of get her sentences in my fingertips. Um so I think it is that sharpness of the prose, but somehow it's really not a coldness. Um, it, it will sound sort of dumb and saccharine to say, but her stories really just break my heart every time I read them. And I think it's this sort of intensity of feeling or a fearlessness to write about ideas and experiences that could so easily be cliche, but somehow with the exactness of the prose, she ends up excavating what I guess we know is, you know, always there under the pretty cliche, but is this, you know, very complicated, uncomfortable, messy truth. Yeah. 
Well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Claire Sestanovich reading The Moons of Jupiter by Alice Munro. The Moons of Jupiter I found my father in the heart wing on the eighth floor of Toronto General Hospital. He was in a semi-private room. The other bed was empty. He said that his hospital insurance covered only a bed in the ward, and he was worried that he might be charged extra. I never asked for a semi-private, he said. I said the wards were probably full. No, I saw some empty beds when they were wheeling me by. Then it was because you had to be hooked up to that thing, I said. Don't worry. If they're going to charge you extra, they tell you about it. That's likely it, he said. They wouldn't want those doohickeys set up in the wards. I guess I'm covered for that kind of thing. I said I was sure he was. He had wires taped to his chest. A small screen hung over his head. On the screen, a bright, jagged line was continually being written. The writing was accompanied by a nervous, electronic beeping. The behavior of his heart was on display. I tried to ignore it. It seemed to me that paying such close attention, in fact, dramatizing what ought to be a most secret activity, was asking for trouble. Anything exposed that way was apt to flare up and go crazy. My father did not seem to mind. He said they had him on tranquilizers. You know, he said, the happy pills. He did seem calm and optimistic. It had been a different story the night before. When I brought him into the hospital, to the emergency room, he had been pale and closed-mouthed. He had opened the car door and stood up and said quietly, maybe you better get me one of those wheelchairs. He used the voice he always used in crisis. Once, our chimney caught on fire. It was on a Sunday afternoon, and I was in the dining room, pinning together a dress I was making. He came in and said in that same matter-of-fact, warning voice, Janet, do you know where there is some baking powder? Afterward, he said, I guess it was your fault, sewing on Sunday. I had to wait for over an hour in the emergency waiting room. They summoned a heart specialist who was in the hospital, a young man. He called me out into the hall and explained to me that one of the valves of my father's heart had deteriorated so badly that there ought to be an immediate operation. I asked him what would happen otherwise. He'd have to stay in bed, the doctor said. How long? Maybe three months? I meant, how long would he live? That's what I meant too, the doctor said. I went to see my father. He was sitting up in a bed in a curtained-off corner. It's bad, isn't it, he said. Did he tell you about the valve? It's not as bad as it could be, I said. Then I repeated, even exaggerated, anything hopeful the doctor had said. You're not in any immediate danger. Your physical condition is good, otherwise. Otherwise, said my father, gloomily. I was tired from the drive, all the way up to Dalgleish to get him and back to Toronto since noon, and worried about getting the rented car back on time, and irritated by an article I had been reading in a magazine in the waiting room. It was about another painter, a young woman, better looking, probably more talented than I am. I had been in England for two months, and so I had not seen this article before, but it crossed my mind while I was reading that my father would have. I could hear him saying, well, I didn't see anything about you in McLean's. And if he had read something about me, he would say, well, I didn't think too much of that write-up. His tone would be humorous and indulgent, but would produce in me a familiar dreariness of spirit. The message I got from him was simple. Fame must be striven for, then apologized for. Getting or not getting it, you will be to blame. I was not surprised by the doctor's news. I was prepared to hear something of the sort, and was pleased with myself for taking it calmly, just as I would be pleased with myself 
for dressing a wound or looking down from the frail balcony of a high building. I thought, yes, it's time. There has to be something. Here it is. I did not feel any of the protest I would have felt 20, even 10 years before. When I saw from my father's face that he felt it, that refusal leapt up in him as readily as if he had been 30 or 40 years younger, my heart hardened, and I spoke with a kind of badgering cheerfulness. Otherwise is plenty, I said. The next day he was himself again. That was how I would have put it. He said it appeared to him now that the young fellow, the doctor, might have been a bit too eager to operate. A bit knife-happy, he said. He was both mocking and showing off the hospital slang. He said that another doctor had examined him, an older man, and had given it as his opinion that rest and medication might do the trick. I didn't ask what trick. He says I've got a defective valve, all right. There's certainly some damage. They wanted to know if I had rheumatic fever when I was a kid. I said I didn't think so. But half the time then, you weren't diagnosed what you had. My father was not one for getting the doctor. The thought of my father's childhood, which I always pictured as bleak and dangerous, the poor farm, the scared sisters, the harsh father, made me less resigned to his dying. I thought of him running away to work on the lake boats, running along the railway tracks toward Goodrich in the evening light. He used to tell about that trip. Somewhere along the track, he found a quince tree. Quince trees are rare in our part of the country. In fact, I've never seen one. Not even the one my father found, though he once took us on an expedition to look for it. He thought he knew the crossroad it was near, but we could not find it. He had not been able to eat the fruit, of course, but he had been impressed by its existence. It made him think he had got into a new part of the world. The escaped child, the survivor, an old man trapped here by his leaky heart. I didn't pursue these thoughts. I didn't care to think of his younger selves. Even his bare torso, thick and white, he had the body of a working man of his generation, seldom exposed to the sun, was a danger to me. It looked so strong and young. The wrinkled neck, the age-freckled hands and arms, the narrow, courteous head with its thin gray hair and mustache were more what I was used to. Now why would I want to get myself operated on, said my father reasonably. Think of the risk at my age, and what for? A few years at the outside? I think the best thing for me to do is go home and take it easy. Give in gracefully. That's all you can do at my age. Your attitude changes, you know. You go through some mental changes. It seems more natural. What does, I said. Well, death does. You can't get more natural than that. No, what I mean specifically is not having the operation. That seems more natural? Yes. It's up to you, I said, but I did approve. This was what I would have expected of him. Whenever I told people about my father, I stressed his independence, his self-sufficiency, his forbearance. He worked in a factory, he worked in its garden, he read history books. He could tell you about the Roman emperors or the Balkan wars. He never made a fuss. Judith, my younger daughter, had come to meet me at Toronto Airport two days before. She had brought the boy she was living with, whose name was Don. They were driving to Mexico in the morning, and while I was in Toronto, I was to stay in their apartment. For the time being, I live in Vancouver. I sometimes say I have my headquarters in Vancouver. Where's Nicola, I said, thinking at once of an accident or an overdose. Nicola is my older daughter. She used to be a student at the conservatory, then she became a cocktail waitress, then she was out of work. 
If she had been at the airport, I would probably have said something wrong. I would have asked her what her plans were, and she would have gracefully brushed back her hair and said, plans? As if that was a word I had invented. I knew the first thing you'd say would be about Nicola, Judith said. It wasn't. I said hello, and I... We'll get your bag, Don said neutrally. Is she all right? I'm sure she is, said Judith, with a fabricated air of amusement. You wouldn't look like that if I was the one who wasn't here. Of course I would. You wouldn't. Nicola is the baby of the family. You know, she's four years older than I am. I ought to know. Judith said she did not know where Nicola was exactly. She said Nicola had moved out of her apartment, that dump, and had actually telephoned, which is quite a deal, you might say, Nicola phoning, to say she wanted to be incommunicado for a while, but she was fine. I told her you would worry, said Judith, more kindly, on the way to their van. Don walked ahead, carrying my suitcase. But don't. She's all right, believe me. Don's presence made me uncomfortable. I did not like him to hear these things. I thought of the conversations they must have had, Don and Judith, or Don and Judith and Nicola, for Nicola and Judith were sometimes on good terms, or Don and Judith and Nicola and others whose names I did not even know. They would have talked about me, Judith and Nicola comparing notes, relating anecdotes, analyzing, regretting, blaming, forgiving. I wish I'd had a boy and a girl, or two boys. They wouldn't have done that. Boys couldn't possibly know so much about you. I did the same thing at that age. When I was the age Judith is now, I talked with my friends in the college cafeteria, or late at night, over coffee in our cheap rooms. When I was the age Nicola is now, I had Nicola herself in a carry cot, squirming in my lap, and I was drinking coffee again, all the rainy Vancouver afternoons, with my one neighborhood friend, Ruth Boudreau, who read a lot and was bewildered by her situation as I was. We talked about our parents, our childhoods, though for some time we kept clear of our marriages. How thoroughly we dealt with our fathers and mothers, deplored their marriages, their mistaken ambitions, or fear of ambition. How competently we filed them away, defined them beyond any possibility of change. What presumption. I looked at Don walking ahead, a tall, ascetic-looking boy with a St. Francis cap of black hair, a precise fringe of beard. What right did he have to hear about me, to know things I myself had probably forgotten? I decided that his beard and hairstyle were affected. Once, when my children were little, my father said to me, You know, those years you were growing up, well, that's all just kind of a blur to me. I can't sort out one year from another. I was offended. I remembered each separate year with pain and clarity. I could have told him how old I was when I went to look at the evening dresses in the window of Benbow's ladies' wear. Every week through the winter, a new dress, spotlit, the sequins and tulle, the rose and lilac, sapphire, daffodil, and me, a cold worshipper on the slushy sidewalk. I could have told how old I was when I forged my mother's signature on a bad report card, when I had measles, when we papered the front room. But the years when Judith and Nicola were little, when I lived with their father, Yes, blur is the word for it. I remember hanging out diapers, bringing in and folding diapers. I can remember the kitchen counters of two houses and where the clothes basket sat. I remember the television programs, Popeye the Sailor, The Three Stooges, Funorama. When Funorama came on, it was time to turn on the lights and cook supper. But I couldn't tell the years apart. We lived outside Vancouver in a dormitory suburb. 
Dormier, dormer, dormouse, something like that. I was sleepy all the time then. Pregnancy made me sleepy, and the night feedings, and the west coast rain falling. Dark dripping cedars, shiny dripping laurel, wives yawning, napping, visiting, drinking coffee, and folding diapers. Husbands coming home at night from the city across the water. Every night I kissed my homecoming husband in his wet Burberry and hoped he might wake me up. I served up meat and potatoes and one of the four vegetables he permitted. He ate with a violent appetite, then fell asleep on the living room sofa. We had become a cartoon couple, more middle-aged in our 20s than we would be in middle age. Those bumbling years are the years our children will remember all their lives. Corners of the yard I never visited will stay in their heads. Did Nicola not want to see me, I said to Judith. She doesn't want to see anybody half the time, she said. Judith moved ahead and touched Don's arm. I knew that touch, an apology, an anxious reassurance. You touch a man that way to remind him that you are grateful, that you realize he is doing for your sake something that bores him or slightly endangers his dignity. It made me feel older than grandchildren would to see my daughter touch a man, a boy, this way. I felt her sad jitters, could predict her supple attentions. My blunt and stocky, blonde and candid child. Why should I think she wouldn't be susceptible? That she would always be straightforward, heavy-footed, self-reliant? Just as I go around saying that Nicola is sly and solitary, cold, seductive. Many people must know things that would contradict what I say. In the morning, Don and Judith left for Mexico. I decided I wanted to see somebody who wasn't related to me and who didn't expect anything in particular from me. I called an old lover of mine, but his phone was answered by a machine. This is Tom Shepard speaking. I will be out of town for the month of September. Please record your message, name, and phone number. Tom's voice sounded so pleasant and familiar that I opened my mouth to ask him the meaning of this foolishness. Then I hung up. I felt as if he had deliberately let me down, as if we had planned to meet in a public place and then he hadn't shown up. Once, he had done that, I remembered. I got myself a glass of vermouth that was not yet noon, and I phoned my father. Well, of all things, he said, fifteen more minutes and you would have missed me. Were you going downtown? Downtown Toronto. He explained that he was going to the hospital. His doctor and dog leash wanted the doctors in Toronto to take a look at him and had given him a letter to show them in the emergency room. Emergency room, I said. It's not an emergency. He just seems to think that this is the best way to handle it. He knows the name of a fellow there. If he was to make an appointment, it might take weeks. Does your doctor know you're driving to Toronto, I said. Well, he didn't say I couldn't. The upshot of this was that I rented a car, drove to Dalgleish, brought my father back to Toronto, and had him in the emergency room by 7 o'clock that evening. Before Judith left, I said to her, You're sure Nicola knows I'm staying here? Well, I told her, she said. Sometimes the phone rang, but it was always a friend of Judith's. Well, it looks like I'm going to have it, my father said. This was on the fourth day. He had done a complete turnaround overnight. It looks like I might as well. I didn't know what he wanted me to say. I thought perhaps he looked to me for a protest and attempt to dissuade him. When will they do it, I said. Day after tomorrow. I said I was going to the washroom. I went to the nurse's station and found a woman there who I thought was the head nurse. At any rate, she was gray-haired, kind, and serious-looking. My father's having an operation the day after tomorrow, I said. Oh, yes. 
I just wanted to talk to somebody about it. I thought there'd been a sort of decision reached that he'd be better not to. I thought because of his age. Well, it's his decision and the doctor's. She smiled at me without condescension. It's hard to make these decisions. How were his tests? Well, I haven't seen them all. I was sure she had. After a moment, she said, we have to be realistic, but the doctors here are very good. When I went back into the room, my father said in a surprised voice, shoreless seas. What, I said. I wondered if he had found out how much or how little time he could hope for. I wondered if the pills had brought on an untrustworthy euphoria, or if he had wanted to gamble. Once, when he was talking to me about his life, he said, the trouble was I was always afraid to take chances. I used to tell people that he never spoke regretfully about his life, but that was not true. It was just that I didn't listen to it. He said that he should have gone into the army as a tradesman. He would have been better off. He said he should have gone on his own as a carpenter after the war. He should have got out of dog leash. Once, he said, a wasted life, eh? But he was making fun of himself saying that because it was such a dramatic thing to say. When he quoted poetry, too, he always had a scoffing note in his voice to excuse the showing off and the pleasure. Shoreless seas, he said again. Behind him lay the gray Azores, behind the gates of Hercules. Before him not the ghost of shores, before him only shoreless seas. That's what was going through my head last night. But do you think I could remember what kind of seas? I could not. Lonely seas? Empty seas? I was on the right track, but I couldn't get it. But there now, when you came into the room and I wasn't thinking about it at all, the word popped into my head. That's always the way, isn't it? It's not all that surprising. I ask my mind a question. The answer's there, but I can't see all the connections my mind's making to get it. Like a computer, nothing out of the way. You know, in my situation, the thing is, if there's anything you can't explain right away, there's a great temptation to, well, to make a mystery out of it. There's a great temptation to believe in, you know, the soul, I said, speaking lightly, feeling an appalling rush of love and recognition. Oh, I guess you could call it that. You know, when I first came into this room, there was a pile of papers here by the bed. Somebody had left them here, one of those tabloid sorts of things I never looked at. I started reading them. I'll read anything handy. There was a series running in them on personal experiences of people who had died, medically speaking, heart arrest mostly, and had been brought back to life. It was what they remembered of the time they were dead, their experiences. Pleasant or un, I said. Oh, pleasant. Oh, yes. They'd float up to the ceiling and look down on themselves and the doctors working on them on their bodies, then float on further and recognize some people they knew who had died before them. Not see them exactly, but sort of sense them. Sometimes there would be a humming and, and sometimes a sort of, what's that light that there is or color around a person? Aura? Yes, but without the person. That's about all they'd get time for. Then they found themselves back in the body and feeling all the mortal pain and so on, brought back to life. Did it seem convincing? Oh, I don't know. It's all in whether you want to believe that kind of thing or not. And if you are going to believe it, take it seriously. I figure you've got to take everything else seriously that they print in those papers. What else do they? Rubbish. Cancer cures, baldness cures, belly aching about the younger generation and the welfare bums. 
tripe about movie stars. Oh, yes, I know. In my situation, you have to keep a watch, he said, or you'll start playing tricks on yourself. Then he said, there's a few practical details we ought to get straight on. And he told me about his will, the house, the cemetery plot. Everything was simple. Do you want me to phone Peggy, I said. Peggy is my sister. She is married to an astronomer and lives in Victoria. He thought about it. I guess we ought to tell them, he said finally. But tell them not to get alarmed. All right. No, wait a minute. Sam is supposed to be going to a conference the end of this week, and Peggy was planning to go along with him. I don't want them wondering about changing their plans. Where is the conference? Amsterdam, he said proudly. He did take pride in Sam and kept track of his books and articles. He would pick one up and say, look at that, will you? And I can't understand a word of it. In a marveling voice that managed, nevertheless, to have a trace of ridicule. Professor Sam, he would say, and the three little Sams. This is what he called his grandsons, who did resemble their father in braininess and in an almost endearing pushiness, an innocent, energetic showing off. They went to a private school that favored old-fashioned discipline and started calculus in grade five. And the dogs, he might enumerate further, who have been to obedience school, and Peggy. But if I said, do you suppose she has been to obedience school too? He would play the game no further. I imagine that when he was with Sam and Peggy, he spoke of me in the same way, hinted at my flightiness, just as he hinted at their stodginess, made mild jokes at my expense, did not quite conceal his amazement, or pretended not to conceal his amazement, that people paid money for things I had painted. He had to do this so that he might never seem to brag, but he would put up the gates when the joking got too rough. And of course, I found later in the house things of mine he had kept, a few drawings, things I had never bothered about. Now his thoughts traveled from Peggy's family to mine. Have you heard from Judith, he said? Not yet. Well, it's pretty soon. Were they going to sleep in the van? Yes. I guess it's safe enough if they stop in the right places. I knew he would have to say something more, and I knew it would come as a joke. I guess they put a board down the middle, like pioneers. I smiled, but did not answer. I take it you have no objections? No, I said. Well, I always believed that, too. Keep out of your children's business. I tried not to say anything. I never said anything when you left, Richard. What do you mean, said anything? Criticize? It wasn't any of my business. No. But that doesn't mean I was pleased. I was surprised, not just at what he said, but at his feeling that he had any right, even now, to say it. I had to look out the window and down at the traffic to control myself. I just wanted you to know, he added. A long time ago, he said to me in his mild way, It's funny. Richard, when I first saw him, reminded me of what my father used to say. He'd say, If that fellow was half as smart as he thinks he is, he'd be twice as smart as he really is. I turned to remind him of this, but found myself looking at the line his heart was writing. Not that there seemed to be anything wrong, any difference in the beeps and points, but it was there. He saw where I was looking. Unfair advantage, he said. It is, I said. I'm going to have to get hooked up, too. We laughed. We kissed formally. I left. At least he hadn't asked me about Nicola, I thought. The next afternoon, I didn't go to the hospital because my father was having some more tests done to prepare for the operation. I was to see him in the evening instead. 
I found myself wandering through the Bloor Street dress shops, trying on clothes. A preoccupation with fashion and my own appearance had descended on me like a raging headache. I looked at the women in the street, at the clothes in the shops, trying to discover how a transformation might be made, what I would have to buy. I recognized this obsession for what it was, but had trouble shaking it. I've had people tell me that waiting for life-or-death news, they've stood in front of an open refrigerator, eating anything in sight. Cold boiled potatoes, chili sauce, bowls of whipped cream. Or have been unable to stop doing crossword puzzles. Attention narrows in on something, some distraction, grabs on, becomes fanatically serious. I shuffled clothes on the racks, pulled them on in hot little changing rooms in front of cruel mirrors. I was sweating. Once or twice, I thought I might faint. Out in the street again, I thought I must remove myself from Bloor Street and decided to go to the museum. I remembered another time in Vancouver. It was when Nicola was going to kindergarten and Judith was a baby. Nicola had been to the doctor about a cold or maybe for a routine examination, and the blood test revealed something about her white blood cells, either that there were too many of them or that they were enlarged. The doctor ordered further tests, and I took Nicola to the hospital for them. When I took Nicola home, I asked the babysitter who had been with Judith to stay for the afternoon, and I went shopping. I bought the most daring dress I ever owned, a black silk sheath with some laced-up arrangement in front. I remembered that bright spring afternoon, the spike-heeled shoes in the department store, the underwear printed with leopard spots. I also remembered going home from St. Paul's Hospital over the Lion's Gate Bridge on the crowded bus and holding Nicola on my knee. She suddenly recalled her baby name for Bridge and whispered to me, We over the we. I did not avoid touching my child. Nicola was slender and graceful even then, with a pretty back and fine dark hair. But I realized I was touching her with a difference, though I did not think it could ever be detected. There was a care, not a withdrawal exactly, but a care not to feel anything much. I saw how the forms of love might be maintained with a condemned person but with the love disciplined, because you have to survive. It could be done so discreetly that the object of such care would not suspect any more than she would suspect the sentence of death itself. Nicola did not know, would not know. Toys and kisses and jokes would come tumbling over her. She would never know, though I worried that she would feel the wind between the cracks of the manufactured normal days. But all was well. Nicola did not have leukemia. She grew up, was still alive and possibly happy, incommunicado. I could not think of anything in the museum I really wanted to see, so I walked past it to the planetarium. I had never been to a planetarium. The show was due to start in ten minutes. Went inside, bought a ticket, got in line. There was a whole class of school children, maybe a couple of classes, with teachers and volunteer mothers riding herd on them. I looked around to see if there were any other unattached adults. Only one, a man with a red face and puffy eyes, who looked as if he might be here to keep himself from going to a bar. Inside, we sat on wonderfully comfortable seats that were tilted back so that you lay in a sort of hammock, attention directed to the bowl of the ceiling, which soon turned dark blue, with a faint rim of light all around the edge. There was some splendid, commanding music. The adults all around were shushing the children, trying to make them stop crackling their potato chip bags. Then a man's voice, an eloquent professional voice, began to speak slowly out of the walls. 
The voice reminded me a little of the way radio announcers used to introduce a piece of classical music or describe the progress of the royal family to Westminster Abbey on one of their royal occasions. There was a faint echo chamber effect. The dark ceiling was filling with stars. They came out not all at once, but one after another, the way the stars really do come out at night, though more quickly. The Milky Way appeared, was moving closer. Stars swam into brilliance and kept on going, disappearing beyond the edges of the sky screen or behind my head. While the flow of light continued, the voice presented the stunning facts. A few light years away, it announced, the sun appears as a bright star and the planets are not visible. A few dozen light years away, the sun is not visible either to the naked eye. And that distance, a few dozen light years, is only about a thousandth part of the distance from the sun to the center of our galaxy. One galaxy, which itself contains about 200 billion suns, and is in turn one of millions, perhaps billions of galaxies. Innumerable repetitions, innumerable variations. All this rolled past my head too, like balls of lightning. Now realism was abandoned for familiar artifice. A model of the solar system was spinning away in its elegant style. A bright bug took off from the Earth, heading for Jupiter. I set my dodging and shrinking mind sternly to recording facts. The mass of Jupiter two and a half times that of all the other planets put together. The great red spot, the 13 moons. Past Jupiter, a glance at the eccentric orbit of Pluto, the icy rings of Saturn back to Earth and moving into hot and dazzling Venus. Atmospheric pressure, 90 times ours. Moonless Mercury, rotating three times while circling the sun twice. An odd arrangement, not as satisfying as the old one for once. No perpetual darkness, after all. Why did they give out such confident information only to announce later that it was quite wrong? Finally, the picture already familiar for magazines, the red soil of Mars, the blooming pink sky. When the show was over, I sat in my seat while the children clambered across me, making no comments on anything they had just seen or heard. They were pestering their keepers for eatables and further entertainments. An effort had been made to get their attention, to take it away from canned pop and potato chips, and fix it on various knowns and unknowns and horrible immensities, and it seemed to have failed. A good thing, too, I thought. Children have a natural immunity, most of them, and it shouldn't be tampered with. As for the adults who would deplore it, the ones who promoted this show, weren't they immune themselves to the extent that they could put in the echo chamber effects, the music, the church-like solemnity, simulating the awe that they supposed they ought to feel? Awe, what was that supposed to be? A fit of the shivers when you looked out the window? Once you knew what it was, you wouldn't be courting it. Two men came with brooms to sweep up the debris the audience had left behind. They told me that the next show would start in 40 minutes. In the meantime, I had to get out. I went to the show at the planetarium, I said to my father. It was very exciting, about the solar system. I thought what a false and silly word I had used, exciting. It's like a slightly phony temple, I added. He was already talking. I remember when they found Pluto, right where they thought it had to be. Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, he recited. Jupiter, Saturn, Nept no, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto. Is that right? Yes, I said. I was just as glad he hadn't heard what I had said about the phony temple. I had meant that to be truthful, but it sounded slick and superior. Tell me the moons of Jupiter. 
Well, I don't know the new ones. There's a bunch of new ones, isn't there? Two, but they're not new. New to us, said my father. You've turned pretty cheeky now I'm going under the knife. Under the knife. What an expression. He was not in bed tonight, his last night. He had been detached from his apparatus and was sitting in a chair by the window. He was bare-legged, wearing a hospital dressing gown, but he did not look self-conscious or out of place. He looked thoughtful but good-humored, an affable host. You haven't even named the old ones, I said. Give me time. Galileo named them. Io. That's a start. The moons of Jupiter were the first heavenly bodies discovered with the telescope. He said this gravely, as if he could see the sentence in an old book. It wasn't Galileo named them either. It was some German. Io, Europa, Ganymede, Callisto. There you are. Io and Europa, they were girlfriends of Jupiter's, weren't they? Ganymede was a boy, a shepherd. I don't know who Callisto was. I think she was a girlfriend too, I said. Jupiter's wife, Jove's wife. Changed her into a bear and stuck her up in the sky. Great bear and little bear. Little bear was her baby. The loudspeaker said that it was time for visitors to go. I'll see you when you come out of the anesthetic, I said. Yes. When I was at the door, he called back to me. Ganymede wasn't any shepherd. He was Jove's cupbearer. When I left the planetarium that afternoon, I had walked through the museum to the Chinese garden. I saw the stone camels again, the warriors, the tomb. I sat on a bench looking toward Bloor Street. Through the evergreen bushes and the high-grilled iron fence, I watched people going by in the late afternoon sunlight. The planetarium show had done what I wanted it to, after all. Calmed me down, drained me. I saw a girl who reminded me of Nicola. She wore a trench coat and carried a bag of groceries. She was shorter than Nicola, not really much like her at all, but I thought that I might see Nicola. She would be walking along some street, maybe not far from here, burdened, preoccupied, alone. She was one of the grown-up people in the world now, one of the shoppers going home. If I did see her, I might just sit and watch, I decided. I felt like one of those people who have floated up to the ceiling, enjoying a brief death, a relief while it lasts. My father had chosen, and Nicola had chosen. Someday, probably soon, I would hear from her, but it came to the same thing. I meant to get up and go over to the tomb to look at the relief carvings, the stone pictures that go all the way around it. I always mean to look at them, and I never do, not this time either. It was getting cold out, so I went inside to have coffee and something to eat before I went back to the hospital. That was Claire Sestanovich reading The Moons of Jupiter by Alice Munro. The story appeared in The New Yorker in May of 1978 and was included in her story collection, The Moons of Jupiter, which was published in the U.S. by Knopf in 1983. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead, Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence. 
a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Claire, this story is about a woman who is, by definition, middle-aged. She's in the middle position between her aging father and her almost adult daughters. And the father is perhaps choosing to die. One of the daughters is choosing to be out of communication with her. We can see, in a way, Janet as this kind of planet around which these moons are orbiting, but always maintaining a distinct distance. Do you think that do you think that's a good interpretation of this title of why we have the the moons of Jupiter in the story? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that the solar system is sort of a, a metaphor that is almost too good to totally trust <laughs> in the story um, of, you know, the solar system and the family system and these various characters trying to figure out their configuration in relation to one another and and I think also trying to figure out like to what extent they can or cannot control that configuration. You know, is it possible to change your orbit? Um, are you locked into it? It is also a story that's a lot about choice um, and we don't think of planets as being free agents exactly. Um, I do think part of what the narrator in her ambivalence, because I do think this is a very exquisite portrait of ambivalence, the story, is is sort of realizing that the choices of these other people have at once everything to do with her and and nothing. Yeah. And interestingly, she doesn't have any choices in this story. She's not the person doing the choosing. Yeah. And it's it's very striking because you get the sense through these little hints that we get of her past life that she has definitely made dramatic choices in her life. You know, she has left her husband. Um, She's also chosen to be an artist. Yeah. Um, which, given the family background that we see, was not an easy choice. Yes. Um, and interestingly, in the version of the story that Monroe published, she's a writer, which I don't know quite what to make of. But, yeah, she later, but yes, she's, later she's, revised she's, it to be a writer. She's an artist here. The idea of her of her career as a painter comes up fairly early when she's sitting in the waiting room and reading a magazine about an article in, in McLean's magazine about um, another painter and thinking of her father reading it. And, and she has that incredible line, fame must be striven for, then apologized for, getting it or not getting it, you will be to blame. Um, yeah. Which I, I reread several times because it's a little bit different from the message you get in some other Monroe stories, which is the girls particularly are not supposed to strive to be noticed. They're not supposed to stand out. They're definitely not supposed to stand out for being intelligent. Um, I stopped a bit on that line. That fame was something her father expected her to strive for, even though she would have to apologize for it. Right. To strive for and then to sort of continually efface or, or almost renounce. Um, you know, one thing I was thinking of is is fame is sort of one way of being known in the world, a very um, 
at once diffuse and superficial way to be known by other people. And I do think part of what we're really seeing in the story is these two people in a very intimate setting struggling with what it means to know each other. And I think this sort of discomfort with fame and that sort of notoriety is getting replicated in different ways in their one-on-one interaction of, you know, do they understand each other? Do they not? Um, The narrator, I think, is quite astute and self-aware in her assessment of how she doesn't know her father. But you also sense that that sort of insight has not necessarily changed her behavior toward her father. You know, you, you can know that you're wrong about somebody and still proceed on that wrong assumption. Yeah. Well, let's think about that first scene in the hospital, that, yeah. the first conversation they have. And they're talking in the kind of shorthand you use with someone you know very well, but also uh, keeping it very surface level. And then her eyes are just completely drawn to this heart monitor <laughs> yes. uh, where the behavior of his heart was on display. Um She says, I tried to ignore it. It seemed to me that paying such close attention, in fact, dramatizing what ought to be a most secret activity was asking for trouble. Yeah. Anything exposed that way was apt to flare up and go crazy. Um, And it's an incredible paragraph (laughs) thrown in the middle of this sort of semi-terse conversation. Um, Yeah. And, and, you know, in their typical way, they're going to make it a joke later. But not yet. Not yet. Yeah. what What is being exposed at that moment? Yeah. You know, I, I think what's frightening about it is we're not sure what's being exposed, you know? Um, it's something very unknown and something that these people have taken great pains that they've, you know, strived, to use the father's word, to, to hide. Um, yeah, I, I think of this narrator of Janet as being quite uncomfortable with intimacy or, or or can't quite figure out her relationship to intimacy. And somehow this particular paragraph seems very related to me to that scene on the bridge with Nicola, which of course is, is you know, really a heartbreaking core of the story. Um, you know, she says something like, Nicola would never be able to detect the difference in her treatment of her. And it's words like detect and detach that come up at different moments. You suddenly realize, like, yes, everybody is monitoring people in this way that the heart monitor is, but not ever quite seeing clearly. And I do think with the father, we're seeing a similar version of that, of of care but with a remove um, and trying to negotiate what is the comfortable distance to keep from somebody. Um, and, yeah, in, in that scene with Nicola when she's saying, you know, Nicola would never know, Nicola would not be told her diagnosis, the sort of cruel irony there is the narrator herself will never know. She's the one who won't know the details um, of Nicola's life. And, you know, I think in in all these scenes where something is threatened to be exposed, whether it's with Nicola or whether it's with the father's heart, um, there is sort of this question of exposed to whom. And of course, in both cases, with Nicola and with the father, what Janet is fearing is that this person is going to be lost, this person is going to die. And anticipating that loss, she withdraws love. Yeah. uh, And goes through the motions of it so that the person isn't supposed to be aware that she's withdrawn it. 
what do you think? Is that what's going on in the hospital when she won't talk to him properly anymore? She's just going after him with badgering cheerfulness, you know, and brushing everything away. That's right after the doctors told her he's got three months at most. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, every conversation they have is an oblique one in one way or another. Um, it's interesting. I think you're totally right about this. It's it's at the precipice of loss. But I think it's a particularly subtle form of loss. It's not just that she's losing her father, but I think it's also that she's losing like a conviction that she ever knew him to begin with. You know, it's also these moments where she starts acknowledging that the things she's thought about her father as, you know, being totally self-sufficient or these certain myths, to use a word we'll probably use again later, are are less stable than she thought. Um, and that's the extra layer or level of grief that Monroe is showing us. It's not just that you lose a person, but you also, you know, lose understanding of them or opportunity to understand them further. And I, I guess I do think of the sort of the most sort of obvious parallel between the father and Nicola is, are these two people that she needs to learn to let go? Like, has she been clinging to the wrong version of them this whole time? Well, there's a moment in that early scene with the father where she sees his bare chest. Yeah. And it looks young and strong and it becomes a danger to her. Now, that's such a strange word to use there. Yeah. I mean, you almost stop and go, wait, is he violent with it? No, <laughs> of course not. I think what's dangerous is that he looks healthy. Yes. He looks alive. She's just detached herself and accepted his death. She hasn't protested it. Yeah. So to then suddenly see him very alive and strong, she might have to unleash emotion again, which is yeah. the danger, right? Yes. And... Yeah, and I think it's in that same paragraph that she says something like, I had no use for his past selves or something. Or yeah, not she use, doesn't want to think about Doesn't want to think about his past selves. Um, yeah, you know, we were talking earlier about change and everything that is changeable. And I think really reckoning with the ways that the people around her have changed is, it's very destabilizing. Um in this story, when I was reading the Bloor Street scene, when she's off shopping, I suddenly read that phrase, changing room, in a totally different <laughs> light. Um, and But it becomes extremely poignant because, you know, she's she's kind of having a panic attack there in the changing room, you know. She's sweating and she's feels she may faint. And she's experiencing what we all already sort of know to be the case, which is that changing is, is very uncomfortable. And more than that, I think, is seeing other people change or acknowledging that their changes are are separate from you. Yeah, very much. And the the two big changes are the father's changing his mind in the course of the story, first saying he's not going to have the surgery and then saying he is going to have the surgery. What do you think keeps driving him back and forth between those? Oh, I guess just, you know, existential ambivalence. Um, you know, in some ways, he, to me, in this situation, is the totally sympathetic character of, of course, how could you possibly decide? And it's it's sort of her rigidity that is more surprising. His decision only fits with 
one idea of her father that she has, and the other one invites a whole different set of possibilities. A whole different—it belongs to a whole different person. It seems almost, you know. She says in that one section, he he was back to being himself. Or yeah, the next day he was himself again. That was how I would have put it. Um, you know, I think even there she's realizing in the that was how I would have put it. This idea of people being one way or another is is not quite as reliable. Right. As she's thought. Right. But I think she's very ambivalent, too, you know? I mean, that's why she, on the one hand, you know, is not going to call Nicola, but thinks every phone call is her. You know, she is, she is equally torn between this, I think, longing to connect and this fear of connection. I don't think we're meant to think she's some ice queen, you know, who, who can't forge relationships. I think it's more that she understands, you know, all that is entailed in such an all-consuming relationship. True connection is, it's no small thing. It's a little bit like what she says about awe of like, if we really understood it, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be looking for it so hard. It's a scary prospect. We wouldn't be simulating it. Yeah, yeah. She has that moment of appalling love and recognition when her father recites a poem I suppose that's in keeping with part of what she said about him, but it's a little grand, and, yeah. it, and it's artistic, and it puts him, I think, suddenly in a different world than, than the one in which she safely tucks him away. And perhaps that's why it's appalling, or <laughs> it's it's not so much that it's appalling to feel it. I think it's a, it's appalling that she's having to see him differently. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Yes, she slotted him into this very sort of tidy, I think she says, self-sufficient, independence, forbearing. You know, that doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room to talk about Hercules. And And slightly condescending and, you know, making jokes about what she does. Yeah, and it's also that that poem, you know, comes out of nowhere. You know, he he talks in a very... level way during crisis. He's not somebody who just pops out with non sequiturs. The, the spontaneity of it, um, which is also related to change, you know, is a, is a very sudden moment of change is particularly threatening. Or not threatening, but scary. Dangerous. Yeah. And in his choices, if he doesn't have the surgery, he's going home basically to die at home. Um, no fuss. If he does have the surgery, you know, one possible outcome is living longer and the other possible outcome is immediate death and in the event that's what happens. And especially since he's quoting that poem, yeah, which has this image of basically setting forth from one world to another that you can't even see. It's hard for me to assess, maybe you have a a stronger idea, whether he thinks he's choosing death or choosing life. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I'm inclined to think we're supposed to accept, like the narrator, that we can't know. Mm -hmm. You know, that that poem that he quotes, I I went and and read it, and it does have this, it is a very grand and the refrain of the poem is sail on, sail on. And it seems sort of straightforward of oh, sailing on must mean fighting. Mm-hmm. But I think there is another way of, you know, maybe sailing on means, you know, letting the tide take you, letting the winds 
bring you where they may. Um, and it's very unclear where the father is, is ending up. And I guess because I do feel like this sort of profound unknowability of people is at the heart of this story. I don't want to know what he decides. <laughs> but I but I do feel I do feel certain that he has decided. Yeah. And Janet is irritated. Yeah. Right? She gets there and everything's changed and yeah. she goes to complain to the nurse and the nurse is like, you know, decisions are hard. Yeah. W- what is irritating her? Well, you know, she says early early on, she says, uh, you know, she approves of his decision to not have the surgery. Um, when he decides he does want the surgery after all, you know, she says maybe he wanted to gamble. And it's interesting, I think, to think of, you know, chance and choice intention here. I guess I think of her as somebody who has a respect for people who make, you know, a choice one way or another, right? You know, she's not going to comment on Judith and Don's sleeping arrangements. She's not going to weigh in on Nicola's life because she sort of feels like they've made choices. But I think this idea of maybe you'd leave it up to chance, maybe you'd, you know, throw the dice. It's a gamble, Yeah, it is a gamble and that that... I guess I think that strikes her as irresponsible. You, you're allowed to make bad choices if you stand by them, sort of. But the the pure risk, maybe she has less tolerance for. And it's, again, not in keeping with the image that she has of her father because he said he doesn't take chances. You know, he, he has some yeah. regrets. And then she immediately contradicts it with all, all of the chances he yes. did take <laughs> as a young man. And, and there is that moment where she describes her father as the escaped child, which, of course, is how we think of Nicola. And so, you know, I do think we're seeing this sort of rotating cast of character that they have a lot in common. And, you know, as I think most of us know from relationships, affinity can also be uncomfortable to confront. And, you know, she has the cruel mirror in the changing room. And I think that's probably going on to some extent We can all, here. We yeah. can all relate. <laughs> <laughs> um and then speaking of mirrors, we get a lot of Janet's relationship with her father and this way in which she resents him joking about her and judging her and somewhat putting her down. And then we have her looking at her daughters, and she has a very similar appraising stare, I suppose. We know that Nicola has failed to strive. She's dropped out of the conservatory. She's became a cocktail waitress. She's maybe on drugs and perhaps feels judged in the same way by her mother. And that's why she's not in communication. Do you think Janet realizes that she's reproducing this relationship? Yeah. It's such a good question because one of the things that feels most slippery about this narrator is how self-aware she seems to be. You know, she tells us very candidly, I am wrong about my father. I am wrong about my daughter. And and so you're very tempted to think like, well, so then she is seeing everything in a clear-eyed way. And this is, we are in trustworthy hands. But I think there are certainly blind spots. I think there must be. You know, I think both she and the father, they even sort of bond over it where he says, you know, stay out of your children's business. That's what I did as well. And then, of course, he goes on to contradict himself by getting in her business. Um, (laughs) But 
I, I think they sort of have a maybe an idea of a kind of, you know, ethical non-interference in their children's lives. And if you stay out of the way, then you have done nothing wrong. And, you know, as we see from there, the complexity and just emotional depth of their interactions, of course that's not the case. You can be having effects on people who are not, you know, right there in your orbit. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, she's having a strong effect on Judith simply by thinking about Nicola. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And as you mentioned earlier, you know, Janet does want to connect, even though she can't quite connect with her father or her daughters. And her instinct is to call an (laughs) ex-lover randomly out of the blue and be annoyed when she gets answering machine. Yeah, you know... I was saying earlier that it seems like, you know, Nicola and her father are the two people that, you know, Janet sort of has to prepare to let go in different ways. And it occurred to me when I, once I was thinking in those terms, oh, Tom is alluring because he let her go. That's why she sort of turns back to him, that in a way it is actually more comfortable for her to confront somebody who has cut the cord than to herself be the one who does it. And here he's done it again by not being there to answer the phone. Yes, (laughs) but I think it's sort of satisfying to her. (laughs) If we're saying that her father is sort of defying her expectations, well, here is Tom Shepard doing exactly what he has done before. So yes, it's disappointing, but also sort of safely predictable. Yeah. Let's talk about what Monroe does with time in the story because she's always so good at it. There is constant non-chronological movement in the story. Why does she open on that day when she's going back to the hospital instead of the day she arrives in Toronto, the day she goes and gets her father and brings him to the ER? Why are we here on day three? Yeah, it's confusing. Um, There are definitely places where I had to read this multiple times. Um. I think it is important that we get their relationship in a sort of um, decontextualized way before we're bombarded with the parallels of the relationship with the father and the relationship with the daughter. Mm -hmm. Um, It dawns on us, these parallels, in a way that I think we can sort of see it dawning on her as well. I'm not sure how complete her understanding of that is, but it creates a much sort of slower build in Mm -hmm. the story. Mm-hmm. We get another pretty remarkable time shift at the very end mm. when we cut back from them saying goodbye in the hospital to where she went between the planetarium and going to the hospital. Yeah. It's same day, but a sudden leap back, and we end before the goodbye happens. Yeah. I I mean, it's interesting to think about the sort of geometry of the orbit in all this. You know, it's where have we begun in this strange sort of spiraling family history? Um, I think that this sort of solitary scene at the end is important because she she is going to be alone. And I think she's going to remain with some of her ambivalence, you know, that that we're going to be given this revelation of hers that that her father and Nicola have chosen. And we're going to sort of see her continue to be stranded in not choosing land or... Mm-hmm. or um, in fact, her, her, her only choice in that moment is to feel that if she sees Nicola, she won't approach her. Yes. 
Yeah, and maybe in that way it is she's sort of a little bit more reconciled with a a passive detachment or I, I don't know. I I don't know if you felt this way, but I I approved of her decision, her <laughs> hypothetical decision to not approach Nicola there. That right, seemed of course, yeah. And and we could call that detachment, right? But it seemed differently detached somehow. No, it's more like respect. Than, yeah. And it's an interesting parallel with that last scene of the father when of course he is finally detached from the monitor and it does feel like sort of in the in those last two scenes, finally the characters in their different ways are on their own. All three of them, yeah. Yeah. And then when you finish the story and look back, you know that she's just been kind of visiting a tomb before yeah. she goes to her father. <laughs> well, yes, it does it makes a whole mess of cause and effect, which I do think is also, of course, central in a story that is kind of trying to trace different, you know, family inheritances and to get the revelation scene after the effect of the revelation scene. I mean, it's all just quite scrambled. And, you know, I think Monroe's brilliance is that she makes it all seem at once sort of very associative and random in the way that memory works. Um, You know, there are these two paragraphs that start in this way that I would never be bold enough to start a paragraph of. I remembered. I also (laughs) remembered. You know, it's just sort of very bluntly um, meandering in its way. Um, But it also just feels so tautly controlled. And you know, she absolutely thought about whether she wanted this. Oh, yeah. Which scenes in which order. No question about it. Yeah. Um, Alice Monroe's father died after heart surgery in a hospital in Toronto in the 70s. She was married and had two daughters in Vancouver and then left her husband. Um, She was a writer, which Janet is in a later version. Does knowing how, how many parallels there are with her own life affect how you read the story? Mm. Does it require us to think of Janet as Alice? I don't think so. Um, when I think of Janet as Alice, or, or when I think of Alice writing Janet as herself, I see more of this sort of cruelty in her portrait of her. It seems much harsher. And, you know, depending on my own mood in reading this story, I found Janet to be incredibly wise and insightful and, you know, a guide I would want through the universe. And other times I thought, oh, you are a chilly, judgmental, unkind (laughs) woman. And that sort of balancing act is maybe one that you can only strike when you're writing about yourself, Mm -hmm. Um, or it is the double-edged sword of extreme self-awareness. So I think that sort of helps make sense of the story to me. But I don't think you need to know. Yeah. Why does she go to the planetarium? Why does the author make her go to the planetarium? (laughs) (laughs) Why do we have um, Why do we have this discussion of the moons of Jupiter with the father at the end? Well, you know, I think it is kind of important that she doesn't really think of herself as choosing to go. You know, it's she couldn't think of anything else she wanted to see. And she sort of ends up there. Which and she, she'd never been before. She'd never been, right. I think the easy answer is she goes to try to sort of, I don't know, get lost in something bigger than herself. You know, 
if the dress shopping is sort of a way to try on a different self, well, maybe going to the planetarium is like you lose yourself completely. It's the universe. It's not you. It's this grand scale. And I guess I think it sort of disappoints her in that regard, um, at least partially, because she's not quite taken out of herself. You know, she, she thinks it's phony. Yeah, she can't turn off the judgmental yeah. soundtrack a bit. But there's also that um, amazing moment where, you know, they say Mercury rotates three times instead of once, as we formerly thought. Yeah. And she's so angry. Yeah. Like, why did they tell us so confidently this was a fact, you know? And then they retract it. Um, yeah. So uh, she's learned that facts can change, I suppose. that Maybe that's what she wanted to get out of it. Yes, and that the old and new are not as rigidly divided categories as we might think. You know, she and the father have that sort of jokey banter at the end about, well, they're new, but... Yeah. Only new to us. Yeah. Um, so what do you, I'm curious just because I've puzzled over it so much. What do you make of this last conversation between them? What's all this Jupiter business? Oh, you're turning the tables. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. I mean, partly it brings in the the idea of, of new knowledge. Yeah. You know, even the universe is unstable, at least in our perception of it. And partly it allows the father to show how actually sort of erudite and educated he is, that he's clearly well-versed in mythology. He's clearly well-versed in astronomy. He reads his son-in-law's Yeah, maybe he Maybe he understands it after all. (laughs) Um, And I think perhaps it cements the new version of him that's forming in her mind. Mm. In a way, you know, along with the poem, along with his decision-making, it's created a new him. Yeah. And one that she can sort of finally see in some way. Yeah. And send on his way, you know. I think there's something satisfying in that last conversation for her. Yeah. And there's something about the way that last comment is so offhand. It's sort of as she's headed out the door. You know, as I was trying to puzzle through this last conversation, I found myself thinking, oh, I've got to Google Jupiter and and Ganymede and figure (laughs) out, you know, what do they say about him in the Iliad? And as I was doing that, it suddenly occurred to me that I was replicating exactly this thing that she's often describing, the way that attention, which is a word that keeps coming up, becomes total fixation and just a sort of means of distraction. And... The real opposite of that type of fixation is sort of the father's non sequiturs. It's the way that that word in the poem suddenly comes to him. You know, at first he says, oh, I don't know who Ganymede is. And then it comes to him. It doesn't even really matter what he's saying about Ganymede, but that we sort of see that he's being given insight somehow in this really random way. It's not planned. It's not the type of insight that you strive for in the way that they have been striving their whole lives. It's the type of insight that comes from their being together. You know, when he comes up with the word in the poem, he says, you know, you walked in the room and then I thought of it. I don't know. It's sort of, it's almost unbearably poignant to me that he couldn't put his finger on, but maybe having his daughter there did give him. But all of these things, the poem and the and the um, Jupiter and, and whatever they 
can remember about the moons. It's common ground. Yeah. Yeah, and he says in that in that poem scene, you know, I ask my mind a question. And you do sort of think, oh, yes, that's what these people have in common. They are constantly asking their minds questions. And, yeah, I don't think we're going to know what answers they've arrived at. But I, but I think I agree with you that there's some satisfaction in this last scene of, yeah, I think he got an answer. I, I think he asked and he figured it out. Maybe not quite, but some sort of response there. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Claire. Thanks, Deborah. Alice Monroe is the author of more than a dozen short story collections, including Dear Life, The View from Castle Rock, and The Love of a Good Woman. Among other awards, she's won the Giller Prize, the Man Booker International Prize, the Ray Award for the Short Story, and the Nobel Prize in Literature. She's been publishing stories in The New Yorker since 1977. Claire Sostanovich's story collection, Objects of Desire, was published in 2021 and was a finalist for the Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize. She was named a 535 honoree by the National Book Foundation in 2022, and she's published stories in The New Yorker, Harper's, and The Paris Review, among other places. You can download more than 180 previous episodes of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On the Writer's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>